Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Nemo Semret. Nemo is the CTO at Grow Intelligence. Nemo, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Awesome. Let's jump right in and have you share with us a bit of your background and how you came to work in the intersection of machine learning, AI, and global food security. Great. Yeah. So, um, I've been uh, at Grow Intelligence for about four years now, four and a half years. And uh, before that, for many years, I, I was an engineer and uh, tech lead at Google. And um, obviously working on a lot of things that are technically similar in terms of machine learning and using data, and mathematical algorithms. What brought me to Grow Intelligence well, first I met, you know, it was the founder, Sarah Menker, uh, had a really compelling vision for why this is an important area to be working on today. And uh, what brought me here was that, A, we're solving some really important problems, some of the biggest problems affecting the world. And secondly, I think that the uh, the timing of the problems that we're trying to tackle is really appropriate, meaning, you know, maybe 10 years ago, this, uh, what we're trying to do today would not have been realistic or would not have made sense. And, and uh, 10 years in the future, it would probably be uh, not so interesting anymore, because it hopefully will have been done. So I mm-hmm. think we're kind of in a sweet spot for this industry. And, uh, and then thirdly, I think uh, what makes it technically interesting is that from various perspectives, whether it's computer science, uh, uh, satellite hardware, data, storage, and infrastructure, a lot of different enabling technologies are uh, available to us today. And so make this problem not just important, and uh, uh, but also feasible, I mean, addressable today. You mentioned Sarah. I had the opportunity to hear her speak at the Black and AI workshop at uh, last year's NeurIPS conference. And so had a chance to learn a little bit about what Grow is up to. First of all, she seems like an amazing person to work with, but also she does a very good job at articulating the motivation behind what you're doing and the importance of the work you're doing. Can you share uh, a bit of that with us? Yeah, I guess the uh, the uh, one way of putting it is, you know, what we do for getting the technical aspects is basically we help people make better decisions in the world of food and agriculture. So uh, motivations, I think, are that you know, data-driven decision-making hasn't quite taken hold in this, in this industry. And, and obviously, it's one of the largest industries in the world. We think about 2 billion people in the world uh, are involved in the whole uh, industry of food and agriculture, from production all the way through to distribution and so on. Um, and uh, this world is, uh, number one, changing pretty rapidly as economies cha- uh, develop and culture, cultures change. Uh, people's diets and what type of food they eat change. So people need to make better decisions about what's going on uh, you know, in the world of food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, besides the you know, so, social and cultural changes um, and economic changes, another aspect is obviously global warming has thrown a lot of uncertainty in, in, in many different uh, food-related scenarios. And then maybe even more short-term, you know, you have trade wars and tariffs and 
deforestation and and uh, and things like that. So, well, there are a lot locusts of- is that something and, you're involved in? There's uh, apparently a massive locust swarm currently in Eastern Africa, and it's expected to make its way all the way to India. Yeah, absolutely. This is a huge topic in the last couple of weeks, and uh, that, that's exactly the type of problem where we would help people make better decisions on. So, if suddenly this this uh, infestation shows up. You know, there, you would if you were trying to decide well, what does it really mean in terms of food supply, or the on not just in total, but like how will it affect this region, that region, this type of crop, other types of crops? What will it do to prices, imports, exports? Um, so yeah, connecting all those dots together and trying to make uh, a more um, informed decisions, regardless of whether you're a supplier or a consumer or a processor is basically the type of problem we we, we uh, help to solve but uh, but yeah i think this is that's a great example you know a few months ago maybe uh, you you would have uh, uh, chosen to mention uh, the us china trade wars as an example or or the uh, swine flu that's affecting um, pigs in asia or or um, the forest fires in in brazil and the amazon all of those are are really great examples of the type of really huge events that that affect our our, our users and uh, that we try to help them deal with. And so who are the, the typical users and maybe a bit more concretely, what are the specific types of problems that they're trying to, to solve? Okay, great. So, yeah, I think one thing that's important, there's a, there's a quite a lot of buzz in this, in this world of agriculture these days, uh, ag, ag tech. Uh, so one distinction mm-hmm. that I want to make is so sort of this ecosystem is, can roughly be split into two categories. There's one that you hear a lot about, uh, which is precision ag. So this is the type of, uh, this is what we don't do. I'll start with that. And so there's a lot of really cool tech related to helping farmers make very, very local decisions. Even every square foot of your field, you could say, well, should I put more water here? Should I put more fertilizer there? And so you'd have instruments and measurements on the field level and, uh, down to uh, subfield level decision making. An example here might be like Blue River, which was acquired by John Deere, uh, and they had a technology that you'd put on the back of a, a vehicle that would like they would identify weeds and spray fertilizer on the weeds to make them burn out or something like that. Exactly. So it's a, it's, a, it's so the different, but then so that's what we call precision ag, or what the world in general calls precision ag. It's yep. really advising things maybe on a few feet at a time. We're we're dealing with a different class of problems, which we um, which we don't think there are any great solutions for right now. But it's more macro. So maybe you're not trying to decide what to do on every square foot, but if you have uh, a chunk of land and you're trying to decide what is the best use of this land, or then in terms of what types of crops are suitable in this place, uh, or what other parts of the world have had success with this type of crop. What are the environmental conditions that make you know one type of uh, crop versus another? So basically, your you know one example is what should I do with this land? Uh, mm-hmm. Six months, one year. Another example is well, if you've you know if you've been producing a certain type of crop and you're concerned about the trends in production of that crop in other parts of the world, let's say you know you're a coffee producer from Vietnam, which is a very large coffee producer. And uh, you're worried about, uh, you know, oversupply or shortages. 
well, you should be able to quickly analyze what's going on in Brazil, even though you're in Vietnam, because you're essentially working uh, on the same uh, commodity. So that type of decision, you know, you'll say, well, will the production this year be greater than expected, less than expected? What's the weather like in the different producing countries? What, what are the expected yields? So those types of decisions in terms of uh, uh, what crops to plant, how much to expect in terms of supply and demand are, are another category. You know, and then going on down the road, down the line, you know, you could be, uh, let's say, a food processor, and you're buying, a, you know, wholesale wheat, let's say, from or, or corn, and you want to know where to buy it from, and maybe you're importing it from different places, so you want to predict which countries or which parts of the world will have shortages or or, or excess supply. Um, that's another example, or you know. In, continuing uh, in other domains you could have a financial application where you're let's say lending money to farmers so if you're you want to know the probability that these loans will, will will become delinquent and that means you need to understand you know the environment and what the what the climate is doing to the farmers and uh, the probability that their crops will fail for example or that there will be a drought or things like that, or that they'll, on the contrary, that they'll, there'll be a huge production and then the prices will be low. So all these things obviously affect the livelihood of the farmer. And therefore, as a lender, you would want to know the probability of those things, whether you're, or, or even if you're pro providing uh, insurance, crop insurance, and, and you could be a bank, you could be a government, you could be all kinds of different entities that, that deal with that. And uh, so, yeah, there is a long list. And another macro type of decision that we enable is, you know, impacts of diseases, you know, I mentioned swine flu. This was a big, a big topic in the world of agriculture last year. Uh, there's aflatoxins. There's like all kinds of different pests and and diseases and things that affect crops that uh, that are affected by weather and climate. So, or the locust that you mentioned is also you know it's mm -hmm. a cyclical phenomenon, but the intensity is depends on on weather. So, if you wanted to know that it was going to be more severe or less severe than usual. Yeah, those are the types of decisions that uh, we would help you make. And now you started with talking about kind of macro level land use and how that's different from the precision ag. Mm -hmm. Are you, does that, is the implication in part that you're less worried about the actual land itself? Uh, like it's, it's clear that a big part of what you do is like market analytics, if you will, and like the entire like supply chain of, of agriculture and, and different forces at play there. But are you also looking at the nutrients in a kind of macro plot of land or is that all left to like the precision ag piece? No, no, that's that's really important actually. Yeah. Even on a so for example, let's say you're trying to understand if there's a a shortage of one crop, how much will people substitute? How how much substitution would there be in another crop, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, a big part of that equation is understanding the content of it. So, for example, uh, we don't just try to predict the the how much uh, wheat will be produced, but we try to predict how how much certain types of wheat would be produced because they have different protein content, and that affects uh, a, a lot of things. Everything from how much will be consumed for different uses uh, and ever, uh, as well as what the prices will be for different categories of things. So yeah, protein content or calorie content of different crops are, is a huge part of it. Uh, also things like, um, you know, if uh, what's the trade-off between, uh, I'll give you an example. I mentioned the, the, the swine flu 
So that's a disease that's been affecting the the pigs in China, uh, to, and and it's a huge deal because that's the the main type of meat that's that's consumed there. Well, you might want to know. Well, okay, if if there is suddenly a shortage of pork, would that you know, translate into an increase in in chicken demand, right? Because people, if there if uh, if pork becomes very expensive, maybe people will start eating more chicken. Now, there's obviously many variables there, culture and so on. But one of the key components is, well, how much nutrition do you get? Like, what's the equivalent amount in terms of grams of protein between these two things? So, so, uh, so um, the uh, the biology of of plants and and understanding the content is is uh, critical, uh, mm. even at the macro level. Now, when I think about all of the problems that you just described, uh, and then think about data that I might want to have access to in order to begin to try to solve these problems or, you know, provide some insights about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems huge. Almost, you know, it, it, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but like infinite, like there's, there's so much data that you could plug into or might want to plug into, you know, a system that solves these kind of problems. Like yeah. what are your typical data sources? How do you approach data acquisition that's a great question. So I think that you know, just just to cover the types of data. So the first thing people think of, and uh, you know, uh, uh, that jumps to mind because it's it's visually uh, important and and uh, quantity wise, it's important is satellite data. That's we have, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of just sheer volume of data, that's the majority of our data. Obviously, we have incredible amounts of information about every pixel on Earth, and and. And it's not just images in terms of the you know visual photography that as you most people would imagine when you think of a satellite picture, some of it is infrared and uh, and ultraviolet and you know so different or the entire frequency range of uh, the electromagnetic spectrum has information about um, what's going on. So what happens is that um, you have different satellite hardware which is which is able to capture different bands of of this electromagnetic signals bouncing off the earth and from that uh some of it is visible so and you know so and some of it is not visible but from that you can derive really complicated and very useful things uh for example you know obviously you can derive temperature which well, maybe it's not so obvious like how can a satellite that's way up in orbit know what's the temperature on the ground well, it looks at various signals bouncing off the uh, off the Earth, and you know there's a well-established science that says, okay, but, you know we fit a mathematical model around that, and we can determine based on on the electromagnetic signature what is the temperature at this on each point on Earth. Similar to how you know you can look at a, a planet or or a star, and and figure out its chemical composition just by looking at the the, the electromagnetic signals that come out of it. You, we can do the same thing with the Earth. So it's temperature, uh, rainfall, you know, including microwave uh, signals. So you can get an idea of what kind of clouds there are, how much rain is there, and how much humidity is coming out of the ground, and so on. So you can estimate temperature, rainfall, or more complicated things like evapotranspiration, which is a, an extremely important signal. It tells us how much, as the name implies, how much water is being released into the atmosphere from the transpiration or like sweating of, of plants. And that's a really important indicator of, of plant health. Um, and uh, and uh, similarly, there's another signal called vegetation index. 
So again, looking at just the colors and the infrared signals, the red and uh, green and infrared, you can determine how much biomass there is, like how much, how, how much living matter there is in the flesh of these plants. And that's also an extremely important signal. And you can get this information from satellites at an individual pixel level and covering almost the entire world. So, mm. so there's enormous amounts of data that's from satellites, and that's, uh, and that's rapidly changing. Uh, and and uh, probably the the uh, the biggest part in terms of volume, not probably it's, it's way more than half of our data, but but in terms of importance, uh, and this is a key point for us, is that well it, it's uh, the the economic data and social data is is all equally important. So prices, for example, or you know commodity prices, or or the, or, or retail prices, or production quantity or yields, historical yields, or how much fertilizer has been used in one place or another, what is the cost of transportation from one place to another. All of these things uh, fit together to, to enable people to answer these complex questions that typically involve climate, weather, economics, and uh, society. Uh, even within economic and social, you've got kind of wildly disparate data types. You've got, I'm imagining, time series data that you need to deal with, as well as, you know, documents that are best considered from an NLP type of perspective. I mean, one of the challenges is, so just as a baseline, um, many uh, countries' governments and uh, non-governmental organizations and companies have been collecting enormous amounts of just basic agricultural data, uh, in some cases for a really long time like the U.S. Department of Agriculture, for example, has uh, over 150 years of data on everything from the yields of every single crop in every single county in the United States to the production and how much area was planted uh, and uh, the crop conditions, you know, meaning were they healthy, unhealthy, what percentage of the corn in uh, you know, in this particular county was considered good as of July 3rd of this year, you know, for every year going back. So there's incredibly granular data that that we're tapping into. And same thing, you know, from the United Nations, from the World Bank, from all kinds of different uh, organizations, academia. Uh, so besides the, the obvious satellite data, there's enormous, enormously uh, amounts of ground-based data that have been collected. And yeah, as you mentioned, some of it is um, some of it is really organized nicely and and has modern APIs. You know, let's say for exchange rates, we have excellent APIs, and we're not reinventing the wheel. You can figure out you can get currency exchange rates in a really good way. But in some cases, it's obscure data sets that were typed up, you know, seventy five years ago, and now exist as some text that's been scanned into an image, and then the image has been put into a PDF. And maybe it's in a different language, so you know. <laughs> so you you would have to you would do a combination of OCR, uh, you know, optical character recognition to extract the text from the images, and then do NLP to interpret that text, and then extract structured data at the end of the day from that, um, which could be like uh, you know yields, for example. So so yeah, so so the the data itself is is a, often a big part of the challenge. We probably could spend a whole hour talking about the the data, but let's maybe take a step back and kind of contextualize this by looking at the the types of problems you solve. So we've talked about this 
from a end user perspective, but are there, do you approach each of the, the problems that your customers are looking to solve as kind of one-offs? Like, do you do consulting or do you have specific categories of products that uh, you offer uh, and most of the work you do kind of falls into different types? Yeah, no, great question. So so the the first point, I think, is that, you know, we're offering a platform. So everything we do to, as much as possible, except for, you know, obvious, uh, some rare exceptions, everything we do, we attempt to really productize it and make it scalable and make it available to all our users. And, and um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about machine learning and AI, but I think one important point is that, you know, the the uh, we offer a platform where people can access all of this data in a highly organized way, uh, and then they can and they can access it visually through a web application or through an API. And we expect our customers to also build their models. So in a way, we're we're providing sort of this platform that gives you access to enormous wealth of data, enormous wealth of data, creating value by uh, deriving data on top of these existing uh, data sets but also making you uh, able to access it in a really organized way. So one of the applications that we have uh, for, for AI is uh, we, we, we've structured this uh, information into a knowledge graph. So we have or what some people call an ontology. So we have the Grow ontology, which, which organizes you know, data from hundreds and hundreds of different sources into a common language. So if we're talking about wheat, and there's you know many dozens of varieties of wheat, you know that uh, you know a bit of data from one source that tells you maybe the protein content of wheat, and then another source that tells you the price of wheat. Well, we have to make sure that the specific type of wheat that these two things are talking about is the same item. So so uh, organizing all of that information into a structured. Uh, knowledge base or uh, you know in the form of a knowledge graph that relates all of these entities is is a, a key part and then our users can can use that uh, through an API or a web app to find insights on, in the data and in some cases we will do so, you know the uh, the extra work for them in terms of like building forecasting models predicting things that uh, that uh, the world is interested in and making that part of the platform as well. And so for the the different types of modeling tasks and the machine learning applications, what are the types of problems that you're typically attacking? So roughly, I think there's four classes of problems. One that uh, the first one is yields, agricultural yields, which is a hugely important. We've been now doing that for for about uh, live in production uh, uh, for a little over three years. Um, and um, so this is things like for the first example was, can you predict the yield of corn in the, uh, in the U.S. Uh, intra-year? So meaning we're now, you know, in, in February 2020, we already have a prediction of what the final yield of the of the U.S. corn production will be, meaning how many bushels or how many tons of, of corn will be produced per acre on average across the United States, as well, as well as down to every single county. Now, we're in February, so and so nothing has been planted yet. So we have a model that's based on historical trends. But as the season progresses, 
and you know we get into March and April and things are getting planted and the uh, and they're starting to grow and we see the weather our 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 prediction gets constantly refined so when we say yield models basically telling you the what everybody will the conclusion that we will reach a year from now meaning what was the how good was the corn yield in the US in 2020 we're constantly estimating that through a, a yield model so if you log into our product every day uh, whatever little bit of information comes from the world that that would help us better forecast the the US corn yield will will, will be incorporated and this is fully productized so that the there's an answer uh, updating itself every day so why this is interesting obviously people have been concerned with us corn yields for a really long time but traditionally it's been done through very uh, you know slow processes where there's a lot of human and subjective elements and maybe you'll have official updates on oh, this uh, on this year's forecast will be updated maybe once a month throughout the course of the year. So we're saying that we'll make that completely objective, automate it, and do it every day. So we did that for corn in the U.S. Uh, and uh, started outputting our predictions in real time. And uh, it proved to be enormously successful in 2017, 18, 19. Uh, in those seasons, uh, we correctly anticipated uh, the final result on, in several instances before the uh, the market or any other forecast or the the traditional forecast had detected them and and when when the truth finally came out in terms of when uh, at the end of the season when the full crop was realized in uh, each time we'd sort of been out on a limb and predicting something unusual it turns out we were we were right and ahead of the curve so that was an enormous success so that's yields and then we've done that now 10 times um we did it for corn in the U.S., uh, soybeans in the U.S., in Argentina, and in Brazil, uh, wheat in India, in Russia and Ukraine, and corn in China as well. So again, a number of different cases where we've we've managed to build really good yield models that are sort of the the state of the art and, and have been able to predict real-world events before anybody else was. So that, that's been one area of huge success, yields. And uh, in each case, like I said, you know, we don't, our customers would also look at, maybe they'll look at, you know, bananas in Ecuador tomorrow, and we may not have already built a model for that particular case, but we've shown a general framework that applies to many crops across the whole world. And more importantly, we're providing you all of the data so that you can use our models and use our, our outputs, or you can also use the data and, and uh, produce uh, predictions of your own if it happens to be a, a, a series that we are not explicitly forecasting. So that's yield. And well, before I move on to the second area, one thing I want to say is we were very strategic about what we choose to model. So as in, for example, in, in uh, the yield case, you know, I gave you a bunch of examples. Each one sort of pushes the envelope in a new, interesting way. So, um, for example, compared to the, the, the U.S., uh, let's say um, the, in one of the key pieces in, in the, when we started modeling wheat in India as well, uh, a big difference is in the U.S., you know, most of the heartland, the corn belt or the wheat belt and so on is especially corn is concentrated in the Midwest. So even though it's a huge area, the climate in the major producing areas doesn't change that much. 
so, but then you go to India and you say, okay, well, India produces a lot of wheat, where, uh, but it's planted all over the country from the north to the south. So that it's actually uh, a key technical challenge that this uh, new example introduced is that, well, how do you do accurate crop masks? You know, how do you model the effect, uh, uh, in, you know, in a, in a, when it's a wide uh, range of latitudes from north to south and the climate is very different. And then the second piece there is unlike the U.S., you know, the farms tend to be really small. So figuring out, you know, which, uh, which points have wheat versus rice versus corn is, is, and so on, and, uh, or just forest and, you know, other things is much more difficult in India. So, so just all that to say that each of these examples is sort of pushes the technical envelope in a different way. And so that, that was, that's, and so yield is that, that's one big area where, where we've done uh, a lot of work. And, and uh, if you go to our website, we've published a, a bunch of papers on that. And, and uh, in our products where, as I said, you know, these forecasts are, are there on a daily basis, uh, fully automated. Um, a second area, uh, fairly uh, closely related is crop masking. So that is uh, a key piece of yields, uh, but it's, uh, it's uh, yield forecasting, but it's its own problems. It's basically looking at satellite imagery, uh, as I described before, um, not just visible, but all the whole spectrum. Across time, we try to predict uh, what is, or uh, to 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 figure out what is going on in each pixel uh, in terms of is there wheat being planted, is there sugar, is it bananas, is it coffee, is it what what the crop is, and this is extremely important, uh, and we do that by looking, and that's called crop masking. So it's a, it's an important point because by itself it's a really useful uh, bit of information to have. You're essentially trying to label each pixel with a a crop. Yeah, and most of and and what makes it complicated is that, um, well, first of all, a lot of crops look the same in terms. Of, <laughs> uh, so you use things of how they evolve over time. You know, if if it peaks in, you know, if if a certain signal peaks in July versus it peaks in August, then it tells you whether it's this crop or that plant, uh, this other uh, crop. Um, but yeah, so we're trying to map, figure, and then secondly is that uh, if you could assume it's all constant, then it's a fairly well-solved problem. Uh, you know, you can, but the problem is, you know, the world is dynamic. So even in the same farm, there's such a there's a thing called crop rotation where people, uh, for various reasons, will plant different things every year, and sometimes it will be a predictable cycle, or sometimes it's driven by. Uh, the the weather and sometimes it's driven by market conditions. So uh, that happens a lot in the U.S. with corn and soy, for example. The same farmer could choose to to use this land for corn or use it for soybeans. So if you're trying to predict the corn yield of this year, 2020, knowing which pixels are corn and which pixels are soybeans obviously has a huge impact because when you then apply uh, the other signals, let's say the temperature, you know, you need to know, am I looking at the temperature in a spot where there's corn or am I looking at a temperature in a spot where there is soybeans because it will have a different effect. Mm-hmm. So so crop masking is its own problem, even though it's an important input to yield, it's its own huge problem. And um, so that's a big area where, where we're doing a lot of work in. And that's a different type of machine learning. So yields that I mentioned before is uh, you often using uh, regression methods, 
uh, whereas crop masking is is heavy on image processing, and uh, and in season crop masking is is a combination of of uh, you know these image cubes over the uh, same place over time. Uh, you apply uh, with uh, neural network techniques applied to it, uh, help you make a much better guess than than uh, than otherwise in terms of what each pixel is. So that's so crop masking is another example, uh, and that one is uses a lot of image processing. A third example of uh, class of problems we work on is droughts. That's very similar to yields, but for different re- for different applications. But um, predicting droughts, th- there are uh, standard international classifications of, uh, and these are b- discrete classifications. You know, this is a, a, a drought of level one or level two or level three, and these are the correspond to severities, kind of like you, uh, you know, you have hurricane severities and so on. So, um, unfortunately, the world doesn't have a single automated, fully uh, objective way to classify the entire world and say, okay, is there a drought? Yes or no? How how intense is it? Is it a one, two, three, four, five, or zero, or you know, meaning it's totally normal? Uh, so what we're trying to do, but there is some manual processes that have been developed over time, historically. For example, governments like the U.S. government will pay, or many governments will pay farmers if there is a drought. It's a you know drought insurance. So that type of stuff, you know, is very uh, inefficient because there isn't a single benchmark. So we're trying to create a completely objective drought index that the entire world can agree on. And uh, it applies for the, the, the every place in the world, takes into account all the, the weather and environmental signals and produces a consistent labeling, you know, of drought severity. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, a, that, that, that's an interesting class of problems that uh, we're, we're working on. And the fourth category that, uh, that I haven't mentioned yet is a completely different type of problem, which is... Um, uh, the knowledge graph automation. So as I mentioned, you know, we bring in data from, you know, dozens and dozens of sources all the time. And we want to organize that into a common ontology so that if we have some data, like I mentioned about corn, we know it's about corn. If it's yellow corn, we know it's about yellow corn, etc. Or we know if it's temperature, on the ground versus temperature, you know, on the ground, uh, land surface versus temperature, you know, uh, in a weather station a couple of meters above ground, it's a totally different concept, like the, the temperature of the ground and the temperature of the air. So, we, you know, our system has to know what exactly you mean by temperature. So, yeah, this means it's highly, highly structured. And that means all these data that come from outside sources have to be mapped and transformed into this common structure uh, so that we're referring to the same entities. Uh, and that, uh, as you know, we're growing exponentially. We currently have about 55 million data series, a little over that, in our platform, and it's doubling every six to nine months. So uh, one of the key pieces is that, you know, we want to be really... Uh, accurate but also efficient about mapping uh, you know outside knowledge into our uh, internal knowledge graph so that means we have a whole class of problems related to knowledge graph automation so uh, that involves uh, uh, graph algorithms and nlp 
and um, you know, uh, slightly less uh, structured sort of neural network approaches and so on that will help us. Um, you say when we have a source that says, you know, if uh, and some of it is just plain language translation as well, but but it's really understanding that hey, if if we have a Vietnamese data series that talks about uh, you know uh, the yields of rice and there's three varieties of rice, it's really important that you know we map that correctly into the items that we call these three or ten varieties of rice and making sure that the, you know the, the Vietnamese word and the English word you know are referring to the same thing. Right. So in addition to any models that you're using to kind of extract the data, for example, you talked about pulling tabular data from PDFs. Mm -hmm. uh, you're also using models to kind of dynamically update the way data is kind of ingested into this knowledge graph and how it's labeled and things like that. Exactly, exactly. So the knowledge graph, you can think of it as the or knowledge graph is sort of the 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 foundation. And then using that knowledge graph, we map stuff. So and we automatically try to learn uh, what the description of things that come from outside and map that into our into our ontology, so that. Uh, but this part, by the way, I think is an important thing to note: is we, you know, AI will help us get eighty, ninety percent of the way there, but we still have human beings really review and understand these things, so that if if uh, our knowledge graph automation says that, oh, uh, maize is the same thing as corn. Well, there's still going to be, you know, uh, unless it's like 99.999% confidence, uh, there'll still be a human who says, is, re is maize really the same thing as corn? Yes, it makes sense and, and prove that. So. Well, it's a lot easier to fix those problems before you pollute the pool, so to speak, when you have, what did you say, 55 million data series yeah. that you're managing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think the, the, the sometimes the, and, and those, the way the data comes in from outside Sometimes it's not clear if, or, you know, the, 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 not every source has a, a cleanly organized way of representing how, what something is versus how it's measured uh, and, and things like that. So, yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, we're creating the, the transformation instruction set, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. through AI. Uh, speaking about kind of that quality of that data set that you're working with, how do you try to account for noise or missing values in the data that you collect? Do you try, do you kind of have a principle that says we're just going to record what we're given or do you try to correct it on ingests? What's your approach there? Yeah, no, great question. So I think at, uh, at, uh, for us, reproducibility and attribution is really, really important. So at the bottom layer, you know, or, or I should say the, the first layer in our platform after the data has been transformed, the values that we, we have are uh, can be directly traced to, to where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, so if we say, you know, the NDVI of, uh, you know, the, meaning the amount of vegetation in this particular pixel is, you know, 0 0.5 or whatever, like then, then, then uh, we'll have that value where it came from if the source revised it, we'll also annotate that and say, okay, this was the, yesterday they said it was this much, and then today they revised it to this much. And this applies to 
you know, uh, economic data as well as satellite data, you know, hardware changes or algorithm changes. So, so, and so even after transformation, we always have the original value and we annotate it with uh, things like when it was reported, when it was revised, etc. So all our data series are actually uh, three-dimensional in the sense that there's the value, there's the time, and then there's also the potential revisions that could have occurred in the past on that particular point. Um, and and that, that's really, really important, when, especially when you're dealing with things like estimates and forecasts and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, like, uh, and of course, it's very important because we don't know in advance every single use case that people will be using it. So if you've if you've done some analysis and then the data changes uh, because the source made some corrections, it's really important that we you can, as a user, you can totally see why that happened and where it came from. That said, on top of that, we add so we 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 do a bunch of things. Uh, one is that. Um, uh, as I mentioned, you know, we build models, so we, we create brand new data that are forecasts and predictions and, and, and so on from the existing data, and those are available in the data, uh, in the platform, just like other things. So, uh, so as I mentioned, the yield and the drought index and all these things that I mentioned. We also do a lot of grow-derived, which is uh, uh, grow-derived data series, which are like basic operations um, that combine data from multiple sources. So, mm -hmm. um, so for example, uh, you know, you may have a you know a trivial example would be, uh, you know, we have population data from let's say the World Bank about every country in the world and how it's growing and including projecting it into the future, and then you have consumption data, let's say from some other organization. Well, then, you know, and well, if you join those two, you can get per capita consumption, which, you know, so you get some data from one source, some data from another source, you combine them and you, you create a new data series that's of independent interest. So that's, uh, so we do a lot of those types of things as well. Uh, and then finally, I think the, the most basic answer to your question, though, is that, every, you know, we try, if, if something is uh, fundamentally difficult data, we often try to get multiple sources. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you go into our product and you say, um, how much sugar was produced in Brazil last year or even, uh, you know, last month, there's probably five different sources that will tell you that, that we have that give you that number. And, you know, they might differ by a few percent because they use different methodologies and so on. And, uh, and uh, you can... Uh, you can take them each individually, or we can give you the average of them, or we can give you what we've selected as sort of the the best combination of things. So, um, so yeah, the answer is, uh, you know, often uh, you triangulate the truth from multiple sources. And, and that's often the a big part of the value. Like, you know, if you look at especially these hugely important economic, uh, hugely economically important commodities, you know, there's a lot of speculation and hidden information and so on. So a lot of the use cases are about getting the same information from multiple sources uh, to get a better version of the truth and then building decisions on top of that. Mm -hmm. and, and with that, you know, the speculation and competition, even on a kind of nation state stage, do you worry about adversarial use cases or data poisoning or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, we don't have any 
specific concerns, but it is the type of thing that each customer would have so their own concerns. So we try to make sure that if there's uh, if there are multiple versions of the truth, we, we, we try to get all of them or all the relevant ones. Uh, so uh, and um, uh, but but at the end, so I think. But at the end of the day, also satellites are. It's 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 hard to lie to a satellite. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's possible, it's possible. You'd be uh-huh. you'd be amazed at the adversarial things that can be done. But, but yeah, I think the uh, there's uh, there's no magic answer. It's trying to get the best possible information, the most objective possible sources, and uh, and then uh, make sure that. It's interpreted and mapped and, uh, and organized correctly. And then obviously then w- when we do modeling, we spend an enormous amount of time uh, back testing, uh, looking at historical data, try- looking at different algorithms. And, uh, and I think this, uh, this touches on another point, which is really important that we haven't discussed yet, is that we try to avoid black box models. If it's possible to, to predict something or forecast something, with a model that has, uh, you know, more uh, explanatory power, a slightly transparent model, we will uh, versus a black box model, we will prefer the former, uh, all else being equal. So, for example, you know, we talked a lot about yield. If we say, well, the yield, we think the yield is going to be higher than expected this year, you know, all of a sudden, then we 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 want to be able to say, well, the reason why our forecast is optimistic or whatever, or just changed yesterday relative to today is because this signal moved, right? And that's a hugely important thing in terms of building confidence in the models and also uh, also letting people use them in the real world. So if you have a model that says, for example, the, uh, the, the yield of uh, soybeans in the US was dramatically affected by the temperature in November, then that doesn't make sense, like physically. Because by November, all the soybeans have finished growing and they should be, you know, harvested by that point. So that's why would the temperature affect it physically, biologically? So our models kind of are not just black boxes where you just throw tons of data and see what comes out. Uh, it's really saying like, well, we want the model to model reality and understand the signals that go in are signals that make sense from a process physical point of view. And then we could also open the box and see what it's doing and understand it. And, and it, it, it makes sense from a biological and economic point of view. It, it certainly makes sense that all things being equal, you'd prefer the more explainable things, but uh, often all things aren't equal. Do yeah. you find that you have specific use cases where the advantages, performance or otherwise, lead you to use black box models? Yeah, so I think uh, yes, uh, and um, you know, then it's a trade-off. Uh, but you know, again, we're not uh, we're, we're we're we'll do whatever is the best trade-off. So there are cases where it's a little bit black boxy and, and neural networky, but at, uh, and like I mentioned, for example, the image processing uh, and uh, crop masking over time, it mm-hmm. could you know it, the it could be if it's. Sometimes you, you would be able to uh, explain it because let's say, you know, like I mentioned, there's rotation between crops. Sometimes it's, it's a very regular thing. You know, uh, let's say one year you plant soy, one year you plant corn and you either. And so if, if it's a very predictable pattern and that comes out of it, then you're like, oh, okay, that 
pattern was picked up. But but uh, if it's a much more, uh, but sometimes in this case, the, this is an example of we've tried all, both approaches, and there are cases where I shouldn't say both, both classes of approaches. And uh, there are some cases where, uh, so we reached the limit. So we d- we went through the classical approach where it's not black box and we're explicitly modeling every single signal and looking at its temporal signature and, and, and saying, you know, when did it turn on? When did it turn off? And trying to fit it into very specific models of behavior. So we've done a really, uh, we've gotten, we've gotten really great results, but sort of we got to the point where we want to go even further and, and get higher accuracy. And in that case, uh, you, you, we, you have to take models with, you know, many thousands of, uh, or tens of thousands of signals. So you're not necessarily going to be able to interpret it every time. And do your models tend to be, uh, you know, wide or monolithic types of models, or do you rely heavily on hierarchy and ensembling and uh, things like that? Uh, more of the latter. So, for example, when we forecast, so uh, hierarchy, time, time scale hierarchies are really important because the the nature of the. For let's go back to the yield example. If you look at the and yield, by the way, is super important because that's the hard variable. If you ultimately you care about how much food will be produced, but uh, mm-hmm. the the amount produced is yield multiplied by area, right? So the area is relatively easy to estimate. Again, there's parts of the world where that's hard too, but if the uh, but so the yield is the sort of the magic variable that everybody is paying attention to a lot because that's the one that changes year to year if it's too cold, too hot, etc. So yields that are driven by two very different timescales. One is if you look at the yield over 100 years, you'll see just a dramatic improvements. You know, and, mm-hmm. and depending on the crop, that curve will look like an exponential or a straight line or a sigmoid shape. It's kind of like how you have Moore's law in electronics. There's like there's similar things happening in crops because people get better at breeding the right seeds and figuring out what seeds work where and, and uh, things like uh, irrigation comes in or, or pesticides or fertilizers. So there's just long term trends that are very important so that's the long-term trend model and that's one time scale but that will only give you the that won't tell you what changed unexpectedly in 2020 or in 2019 so so we do construct the yield models explicitly as two levels one is a long-term trend model that's saying even even on you know the first day of the year before a single seed has been planted we already have an idea of where long-term progress should be and it's different for every country and every crop and then off of that baseline so that you know that that by itself is valuable right like you could just have long-term forecast i can say okay this is what it's going to be like you know in germany in 2021 and in india or pakistan in 2022 etc you can have forecasts but then uh the short the intra-year part is saying okay what's going on this year how much has been planted what's what was the temperature the time you know at different point right. season and so on. So the in-season model is taking a whole bunch of other daily and, and weekly and so on signals, whereas the long-term model is taking you know annual and uh, and, and historical uh, trends. So so yeah, so yield is an example where decoupling those two, and you could try to model just the the just model it as a time series without doing that. But then you you just uh, the the problem becomes way. Uh, 
way noisier and harder and you just don't get good results and and um so so it's very much uh yeah so that's that's one example uh another example is uh, demand wise demand on the demand side which we haven't talked too much about but uh uh, you know, if you are trying to forecast consumption of different things, similarly, again, there is some long-term trends that are driven by like economics, you know, uh, uh, and and uh, culture. Uh, so, for example, you know, the many countries throughout the world, you know, as the GDP or as the income per capita increases, you know, uh, and people rise out of poverty, the amount of meat that they eat is going to increase because when very poor people generally can't afford to eat meat of any kind. So as as countries develop, the first thing, one of the things you see is the the diets start to change. So those types of things are macro long-term trends. So you definitely need a long-term model for that. But then on top of that, you know, on any given year, prices could be high. And so the demand for one thing could be high or low or, or things, you know, trends can change. So uh, similarly, on the demand side, there's also these short and long-term timescales, and modeling them explicitly makes the the, the problem much more solvable. Uh, and and I think more generally, um, you know, if we're trying to uh, we we feature engineering and and hierarchical modeling is really important. Again, it goes back to the point about black boxes. You know, we could we have uh, as I mentioned, fifty-five or fifty-six million data series. And if you translate that into different values, it's in the hundreds of trillions of data points. So one approach would be, hey, for every problem we have, just throw every data point in that, that exists in our platform <laughs> into it and see, well, yeah, sure, let the machine learn it, right? <laughs> but the problem is you can't give a machine like 600 trillion data points and say, okay, predict one value. It needs a lot of help. So we have enormous amounts of expertise in the company in terms of... Um, you know, uh, remote sensing experts, uh, agronomists, uh, hydrologists, and people like that who are saying, ah, okay, well, don't just throw a million features. Just these are the hundred features that really should matter, right? And then, and then when we see impact of different features, we can say, ah, yes, that makes sense that this feature, this phenomenon effect causes, you know, this cause has this effect because we understand how these, whether it's biology or economics. Or transportation, or what have you, there is some domain knowledge that that says yes, this makes sense. Well, I know we're running a bit long here. If you've got time for one more question, I'm, I'd be curious to have you, you know, just give us a sense for your overall modeling process, and in particular, if there are any unique aspects to the way you approach models beyond the things that we've talked about thus far systematically. Uh, yeah, I think I guess the the one of the key things is what we choose to model. As I mentioned, you know, we have a platform where you could really be uh, modeling a million different things every day because uh, we're giving uh, this highly organized platform that allows you to answer all kinds of questions. There's a few things we do to before we decide to model something. Uh, one is, is it an important problem to model? Right, like all the examples that I gave. They're not just, uh, they're, they're economically really interesting for our user base. So, you know, and like, uh, for example, I, I mentioned a couple of times wheat in India. Well, you know, there, of course, there's really cool scientific and technical challenges. But the first question is, does anybody care? And, and in that case, the answer is yes, it's a huge question because 
historically, you know, India obviously is one of you know one of the largest countries in the world uh, in terms of population uh, and uh, the second largest. And uh, but historically, and wheat is a big, uh, big staple there, uh, you know, uh, for uh, the for the people of India. And historically, though, for the last fifty years, India has been self-sufficient mostly. So it, they produce a lot of wheat and they consume a lot of wheat, but it doesn't quite interact too much with the rest of the world's wheat. Uh, but now, you know, because uh, the, you know. India continues to develop economically, um, and as well as you know, there are some theories that their green revolution of the last fifty years is sort of leveling off, and and they've kind of uh, some people are concerned that their production will not continue to rise as it has, but the demand will continue to rise. So if that happens, and there and suddenly. Uh, a small percentage change in supply and demand of wheat in India could translate into enormous amounts of imports, right? Because it's sort of like, you know, you have this huge number of production and a huge number of consumption that are kind of well-balanced, but if there's a small change, even a 5 or 10% difference shortage, and then they, they need to import that much, then that means, you know, a huge new source of demand in the world and maybe... Australians will start producing a lot more wheat to export to India or Canada and other countries who are importing will have to import from other places. So it it, it's sort of like this big iceberg that's hiding under the water that could have a big impact. So, so all that to say is that the first part of modeling process is, is it an interesting thing to model from a business point of view and is it, uh, and uh, uh, fundamentally. And so, so, you know, but that and and there's a lot of them, but it's important that we work on the right ones. Uh, mm-hmm. And secondly, is then we, we like I said, we don't come at a problem with a solution, uh, which uh, I think distinguishes us from many companies where, where we didn't start out as an AI company saying, well, you know, let's just find a problem to work on and and stumble into agriculture. It was more. Um, uh, a joint thing of figuring out that you know this particular domain needs these answers and needs better uh, decisions, but we don't care if we end up using neural networks or gradient descent algorithms, GBoost or random forest algorithms, and mm-hmm. so we're we're agnostic to technology, uh, but we want to solve the problem. So, so I think that the second part of our approach is. Where every single new problem, we're prepared to use different approaches. Uh, but third, uh, third piece is that when we build a particular model, we do try to build a framework that helps us experiment in all the, in, and reuse things in, in different situations. And um, so, for example, even though each country and crop is different for our yield modeling, we do have a basic framework that applies across the board. And uh, some, you know, the input signals will change, but there's a two or three key algorithms that we we will always use, and but and then uh, the the specific inputs will be different. But the uh, the back testing and and the how we evaluate our results and so on will be will be following that process. Um, and um, and yeah, we we try to look at uh, finally when we we're getting close to. To, to having a, something that we like and that, that we, we, we we're ready to launch, 
um, we look at performance in, in very unique ways. So, uh, for example, you know, we don't look at just the average value of, of our error or, or just the single. But, you know, even when we're predicting a single number, let's say the wheat yield of, of Russia or the, or, or the Black Sea region, it might be a single number at the end. But underneath it, we're actually making that same prediction in a much more granular way. So we look at, oh, how is the error distributed spatially? And does that make sense? How's uh, the error distributed in the backtesting? Like, what are the when we run it, uh, when we backtest historically? Does it, you know, what what are the years where our model would have performed better or worse, and why is that? Mm-hmm. And does that mm-hmm. is it just random noise, or is it like uh, does it give us features that we should model? So we have a very iterative process where we look at spatial, temporal distribution, performance and bring in a lot of domain expertise to sort of figure out the feature engineering and and, uh, uh, and tweaks that we need to do to have a, a good model. Mm-hmm. Is it hard in your case to know when to stop, when it's good enough? Uh, no, I think we're lucky because, again, from the first point I started with, we usually have a very clear idea of why this is interesting. And together with that comes an idea of what's ex- what, what's reasonable to move the needle, right? So mm-hmm. in terms of uh, to add value to the world. So, you know, like let's say if you're trying to model something in the United States, then, you know, the, there's typically going to be a lot of really good inputs, a lot of historical data and better than most other places in the world. So the so we will our expectation will be like well okay to make a difference in this case we really make gotta make sure that our error is less than zero point five percent right uh, because anybody can get to within two percent or whatever right like uh, and, and the data is so good it's yeah exactly and yeah. and conversely you go to a country where or a part of the world where there's very little data and there's no or maybe maybe no ground truth at all so on and then you're like well okay everybody's the best anybody in the world can do is 10% so or right. 20% or they have or maybe 50% because they have absolutely no idea what's going on and then in that case we're like well okay can we consistently robustly pr- make a forecast that has an error of 10% and that's maybe that's awesome that would be terrible for for something that you know that uh, everybody else has a 1% error on but if it's everybody else has a 20% error then we'll put it and we'll be confident that we're adding value. So, so, so we always know when when we are adding value and when we're not adding value, uh, and so that gives us an easy way to say, okay, let's launch this. Even though there's a million things that we could do to improve, we're, we're already ahead of the you know we're adding value. Well, Nemo, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and uh, sharing with us uh, what you're up to there at Grow. Very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Sam. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I hope it was informative and inspiring. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.